You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Our gracious and our loving Father, we thank you that you are real, and we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you speak to us. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to grope around in the darkness trying to figure out how to live this life, uh, because we have your word, the Bible. Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word today, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, that you would make us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want you to think about two things. The Bible and the world. We read the Bible, we love the Bible, it's God's word to us, yet we find ourselves living in this world, in Melbourne, Sydney, in the West, whatever you like it. But the Bible and the world are opposed in their view of life and eternity. The Bible that we read, that we believe in, that we love, the Bible speaks of eternity. It speaks of a life to come after this one. The world, on the other hand, that you and I find ourselves in, the world tells us that this life is all there is. 70 years, 80 if you're lucky, maybe 90. Friends, one of the ways that we can see the difference that the Bible and the world portrays life and eternity and vision for us is in popular media. You go and watch Uh, pretty much any movie in the cinemas today, and you can see the vision that they're casting for humanity is just simply not attainable for 99.9% of the world. Let me give you an example. In these movies, you've normally got a handsome man who hasn't shaven for a few days, he's got a great body, got a six-pack, all of a sudden, he'll meet some beautiful woman, he'll fall in love with her, they're out to save the world from some kind of evil together, they barely know each other, but then they're in bed together, the next morning, Mysteriously, he drives off into the distance in an awesome sports car, gets in a car chase, he fights some baddies, he shoots about 60 people, he beats the bad guy boss to a pulp, and he wins, and that's the dream. That's the dream. That's the world. That's the vision of our lives. Friends, but that is simply just not the world of reality. It's not real. You see, let's say there is a guy who's got this great personality. Let's say he does have a great smashing body. Let's say he does happen to meet a very attractive woman and fall in love with her. These movies, the world that we live in, it doesn't show us the fact that this couple will have problems. You never see the couple fighting. You never see the guy leaving the toilet seat up. You never see them arguing about food or paying the bills or how to use a toothpaste, all these things. You never see the girl getting pregnant when she didn't want to. We don't see sexually transmitted diseases. We don't look about divorce and adultery and things like that. We never see the guy actually having to work and earn money to put the fuel in his sports car. Friend, the world portrays to us a lifestyle that is just unreal. In these movies, there's no cancer. In these movies, there's no marital disappointments and failures. In these movies, there's no demotion. There's no VCE disappointments. Friends, it's just not the world that we live in. This vision that our world is casting for us is just not real. It's unreal, and it's not smart to believe in those things. Friends, the world that we live in will present hope to you as that. Hope, glory, vision to us as that. Friends, I want to remind you today 
that God has such a greater vision for your life than that. God has such a greater vision for us, His people, than that. What we see in the movies, what we see on Instagram, this hope that the world throws at us is just not real. It's not the world of reality. Friends, the world of reality is found in the Word of God, in the Bible. The Word of God that is true, that is eternally relevant, that is certain, it is fully and perfectly coming to pass. Movie stars will come and movie stars will go. Instagram influencers will come and they will go. But the Word of God comes to us and it remains forever. The hope that I want us to be thinking about today will not fail, it will not falter, it will not waver. The hope that I want us to be thinking about today comes from the Bible and the word is glorification or future glory. I want us to be thinking about future glory. My hope for our time now is to look at what God's word has to say about our future, the future glory that is coming to us. You see, friends, the the biblical doctrine of glorification or future glory, it's going to tell us that God has an awesome plan for his people, that he has a wonderful plan for his people. It's going to tell us that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, they were going to continue to live this life. And then at the end of time, when Jesus returns or we go home, we will live forever delighting with our Savior in perfect relationship with God. Friends, if you like structure, this is the structure for this talk. There are two things that this passage teaches us about this future glory. So I want to look at those two things from this passage and I want to talk about maybe some implications for our life today. Two points of observation and applications for us. The first thing this passage tells us about this glory is this. We yearn for a glory that is yet to come. We yearn for a glory that is yet to come. One of the words that turns up multiple times in these few verses here, especially verse 18 to 30, is this unique word. The word is groan. Groan. Verse 18 to 30, it says, we groan, the earth groans, we groan, the spirit groans. And when you think of this word groaning, the image that's coming to us, it's an image of yearning. I don't know if you ever fasted before, if you've gone without food. If you don't eat food for a while, let's say you have a medical appointment or something and you don't eat, your body physically groans. Why? It's yearning for food. You're hungry. It's yearning, it's groaning, it's eagerly desiring something to come to pass. We see in this passage, the word groan pops up many times, and it's trying to tell us that as creation, we desperately, eagerly want something to come to pass. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 19 to 21. Uh, Verse 19 to 21 reads like this. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. There it says, it says there that creation eagerly waits with anticipation. Why? Verse 20, because it's subjected to futility. It's subjected to frustration and failure. Look with me at verse 22. Verse 22 reads like this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Friends, creation itself groans for future glory. It groans, it yearns for a redemption that is yet to come. The glory that we are yearning for, friends, is the redeemed creation. Friends, you see, this world that we live in, it's beautiful. We, 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 we took a flight here a few days ago. We see the clouds, see the sunrise. Oh, it's glorious. It's amazing. 
Friends, even in this world, you and I, we get glimpses of God's glory, God's majesty, His beauty. And, and, and even in a very ordinary place like Doncaster, you can see God's glory. Sunrise, sunset, beautiful trees, cute puppies or kittens. We see God's glory in creation, yet we know that the world that we live in is broken. Something is not quite right. You read the news, you scroll through your news feed, something is demented, something is broken. Something is not the way God intended for His creation to be. And we're told here that it is designed by God to be subject to futi- it's futile and is prone to failure and frustration for us. Friends, we know that this world that we live in is not the same world that God created. Something went wrong. Genesis 1, 2, God creates. What does He say? He says it's good, good, very good. The world that we live in now, something is not the same as the world that God initially created. Friends, this glory that we're yearning for is a kingdom that is yet to come. This creation waits and yearns and groans for a creation that is yet to come. As a result of our rebellion against God, Adam and Eve in the garden, as a result of first sin, everything breaks down. Creation itself breaks down. Everything is subject to failure. Everything is tainted by sin and the ramifications of sin. But you and I, we as God's creatures, we yearn for a glory that is yet to come. But this glory that we yearn for, or that we should be yearning for if we're Christians, it's yet to come. It's not here yet. It's a kingdom that's off in the distance. It's not here yet, but it's coming. What do we have? A promise. We have a promise. Friends, it is this kingdom that is described in the book of Revelation as the new heaven and the new earth. And the image that's presented to us in the Bible is not that when you die, you float off somewhere like a ghost. No, the imagery given to us in the Bible is that at the end of time, the new heavens and the new earth come down and there's a redemption of creation. There's a redemption of this fallen creation. Friends, we don't float off as some kind of Caspar ghost. No, God is involved in the business of making things new. God is in the business of redeeming things and even creation itself. We're promised that God is going to make new. The new heavens and the new earth come down, and we talk about this in regards to it being God's kingdom. And if you were to ask, what is this kingdom like? If you were to ask, what is heaven like? It's interesting, because whenever Jesus teaches about heaven or this kingdom that is yet to come, whenever he teaches about it, he uses images. It's kind of like how we're talking, and we might use illustrations to make something more understandable. Jesus did that all the time. And when Jesus talks about heaven or this kingdom that is yet to come, he uses imagery. He uses illustrations. And he would often describe the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that we're yearning for, by using images. One of the images that he uses is this. The kingdom of God is like a banquet. We love banquets. You love banquets. The kingdom that we're yearning for, or that we should be yearning for, Jesus says it's like a banquet. Christian, do you know what your glorious future is like? It's like a banquet. Friends, I love banquets. I especially like buffet banquets. I especially like seafood banquets. My, my waistline doesn't like them very much. My wife tries to restrain me because I go crazy and try and eat all the oysters and things like that. But we love banquets. When you think of a banquet, what comes to mind? Think about it. You think of food. You think of friends. You think of party. You think of conversation, laughter, joy, delight, entertainment. It's a great place to be. Friends, the kingdom that we're yearning for is like a banquet. Are you yearning for that kingdom? 
You ask, what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus likens it to a wedding. When's the last time you went to a wedding? Think of a wedding. As a church family, um, my guess is you have a lot of weddings that you attend as a church family. There's a lot of weddings. When you think of a wedding, what do you think of? You smile because you love weddings. We love weddings. When you think of a wedding, you, you can see a young guy standing at the front looking kind of nervous, very dapper in his suit. He's kind of nervous. It's like, is she going to show up? Is she going to be late? What if she says no? What if she last minute cold feet bails? What? There's a nervous guy at the front. Everyone's waiting around. you got your random old ladies with the iPads trying to take photos. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting place, right? And then what happens? The bride arrives. And what happens? Everyone stands and we hold our breath. It's a glorious moment. And then someone plays the organ or there's a band something and the doors open. And she looks beautiful. And she walks down slowly. She's radiant. She's beautiful. She's glowing. It's breathtaking. Friends, this kingdom that you and I should be yearning for is like a wedding. We love weddings. Why? Because there's joy in weddings. There's delight in weddings. There's unity in weddings. There's promise in weddings. There's laughter. Friends, what is this kingdom like? It's like a wedding. Friends, it's this kingdom that you and I should be yearning for. It's a kingdom that is not yet come. What's the kingdom of God like, friends? This kingdom that is coming for us, it's like a city with no gates. Here's the thing, you don't need gates in a city unless you're trying to keep the bad guys out. And the truth of the Bible is, in this coming city, there is no evil. There are no bad guys. There are no threats. There are no tears. That is the kingdom that is coming to us. Friends, the reality is, in the future kingdom of God, which is to come, there will be no evil. There will be no injustice. There will be no racism. There will be no violence. Because in this place, the spear will be shattered and God will rule in love and equity. What's it like? It's like a garden, Jesus says. It's like a garden. It's mentioned as a paradise. Beautiful, restful, peaceful, lush. What's this kingdom like? It's like a place where the streets are made of gold. Think about that. Friends, all these things, but you know what the best thing about this kingdom is? You know what the best thing about this glory that we're yearning for is? The best thing is, God will be there. God himself will be there. Jesus, the, the captain of our salvation, he will be there. The one who has died for you and me, he will be there. We get to hang out with Jesus. That's the best thing about this coming kingdom that you and I should be yearning for. Friends, in Revelation 22, John says this. He says, in this place, there will be no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. You know, friends, I yearn for that day when I have great relationship with God. I yearn for that day where spiritual dryness isn't a thing. I yearn for a day when my friendship with God is made perfect. No distractions, no temptations. No looking to the left or right where I am delighting in Him and He in me. Every now and then, at home, I'll read the Bible, I'll sing a song to God on my guitar, I'll listen to some hymns, I'll reflect on who Jesus is and what He's done for me, and sometimes I feel a real deep sense of God's active and glorious presence in my life. But if I'm honest with you, most of the time, I struggle to pray. Man, it's, it's work reading the Bible. Most of the time, I'm trying to fight the sin in my life and it's a struggle to read the Bible. It's a struggle to hear God's voice in His Word. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And because I'm still living in this tainted world marred by sin. 
I should be yearning for this coming kingdom where I will see my God face to face and my relationship with Him will be perfect. Don't you look forward to that? Don't you yearn for that? A day when you and I will be delighting in God perfectly. How glorious. How majestic. Friends, the good news of the Christian message is that for those of us who are in Christ, that this kingdom is coming for sure. For sure. Guaranteed. It's a kingdom that's coming and it's a place where there's no pain. It's a place where there's no mental health issues. It's a place where there's no cancer, no more crime, no more virus. It's a place where there's no marital unfaithfulness. It's a place where there's no demotion at work. Friends, it's a kingdom that we yearn for. But here's the problem. We have this glorious kingdom that we can look forward to, which is so glorious that it can only be described by way of analogy. It's so glorious, and yet what we often do is we watch the TV, we scroll through our news feed, we read the news, we talk to our friends, and in our minds we think, 70 years. We live for 70 years. We plan for 70 years. We give all that we have and all that we are to set ourselves up for 70, maybe 80 years. That's it? Is that it? If that's it, if we live this life and there's nothing beyond it, then Paul says that we should be pitied, that Christians should be pitied, that we should be the laughingstock of all people. If all we have, friends, is 70, 80 years, then to be honest, go home, hug a tree, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For tomorrow we die. Friends, but the reality is, that's not the truth. The truth is, there is eternity awaiting. The truth is, there is this kingdom coming, for sure. The truth is, we are yearning for this kingdom that is coming for sure, a kingdom that will never fade. Our problem is we look too low. We're like the man John Stott, the English preacher, speaks of. John Stott tells the story of a man, and he's walking along one day on the streets of England, and he's walking along, and he accidentally kicks something on the ground, and he looks down, and he notices there's a five-pound note stuck to his shoe. And according to John Stott, as a result of that event, this man got so excited about finding some money that for the rest of his life, he failed to look up. And wherever he'd go, he'd always walk with his head in the ground. And John Stott says this, Think of what this man lost. He couldn't see the radiance of the sunlight. He couldn't see the shine of the stars. He couldn't see the smile on the faces of his friends or the blossoms of springtime, for his eyes were in the gutter. And then John Stott concludes, There are way too many Christians like this man. We have important duties here on earth, but we must never allow them to preoccupy us in such a way that we forget who we are and where we're going. Did you catch that? He says there are way too many Christians like this man. We have important duties on earth. Yes, we have. But we must never allow them to preoccupy us in such a way that we forget who we are or where we're going. Friends, maybe some of you have come to church today and you've forgotten where you're going. Maybe some of you come to church today and you're living your best life now. And maybe you've bought into the vision that our world is casting for you. To live the dream of this world. Friends, if that's you, I want to urge you today, lift your eyes. Lift your gaze. Lift your eyes to the God who made you. To the God who saves you. To the God who promises you this glorious kingdom that is yet to come. Why has He created you? What's the chief end of your existence? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That God... Friends, lift your eyes today to the reality of this kingdom that is yet to come. 
Friends, I'm convinced as Christians, one of the best things we can do by way of spiritual disciplines is to take time out at least once a week and to just shut up and think about this glorious, eternal kingdom that is coming. Sometimes I get sad, not just with ministry, but with my own sin. Life is hard. Sometimes what I need to do in that situation is to just shut my mouth and think about this glorious kingdom that is yet to come. And you know, when I do that, it strengthens my my vision for my life. It reminds me, man, there's not just 70, 80 years. I'm 32. I don't have that much time left. Some of you are older, sorry. You know, but I realize there's a glorious kingdom that is yet to come. Friends, we should be yearning for this kingdom. And as we yearn for this kingdom, it empowers us to live more meaningful and more effective lives. Friends, I wonder if the things that we are giving ourselves to in this life right now, whatever your hobbies and passions might be, I wonder if we want to look back in a billion years' time and have any regrets. Friends, live for eternity. Don't live for 70 years. Friends, firstly, we yearn for a glory that is yet to come. But secondly, we yearn for a redeemed body, for a redeemed physical body. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 23. Verse 23 reads this, Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, here's the good news. God is going to redeem your bodies. Physical bodies. If you've got the belief that when you die, your body just stays six feet under in the ground and your spirit or your soul kind of just floats off into freedom, you've misunderstood the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, friends, your body will go into a grave, but there is coming a day when Christ at the great resurrection will raise your body. The Bible says the perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. And friends, this is great news. Because you and I, we yearn for a body that doesn't break down. When I was younger, uh, I, was, I was a lot more athletic than I am now. Uh, earlier, when I was in high school, I reckon I could run 100 meters, maybe in 12 seconds. Now, it takes me 12 minutes. We got problems. I was just telling my guys, when I play basketball, once a week, it takes me seven days for my knees and ankles to get better. You know, we, 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 we eat something, and if you're on the wrong side of 30, you just you need new clothes, straight to your knee clothes, right? We, friends, we yearn for a body that needs to be glorified. Friends, we yearn for a body that doesn't break down, but on a more serious note, if you've experienced cancer in your family, maybe your parents, if you've experienced someone with real dark mental health problems, and it can look so bleak, and it can look so hopeless, that should remind us to look forward to the kingdom where those things will be no more. This kingdom that is coming for sure to us who are in Christ. Friends, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Friends, we have a yearning for a body that does not perish or break down. Friends, the truth is, for those of us who have a saving faith in Jesus, we look forward to this 100% secured future. Our bodies will not perish. At the great resurrection, God will glorify us by raising us physically from the grave and giving us bodies that are incorruptible, glorified bodies. Friends, what have we seen in Romans 8? Firstly, we've seen that we yearn. We should yearn. We should be yearning for this glory that is yet to come. When we turn on the TV and we see that there's been another terrible sexual assault in our town, it should make us yearn. 
when you go home and you realize your parents are talking about getting a divorce, it should make you yearn. When you visit your sick friend in hospital and you realize you don't have much time left and it's sad and doom and gloom, it should make you yearn. When you're sitting there with your friend who's going through real deep relational difficulties, it should make you yearn for this kingdom that is yet to come. As you fight the sin in your life and it feels so overwhelming at times, so discouraging, it should make you yearn. Friends, we have this glorious kingdom that is coming for us where we're going to meet our maker and he's going to make everything perfect, everything new. But you might ask, okay, Matt, how do I know this is true? It sounds so good. But how do I know it's true? It sounds almost too good to be true. Friends, I would challenge you today by saying this. Our glorious future is secure. It's absolutely secure. Why? How do I know our glorious future is secure? Because it's secure firstly, because we don't worship a God who's in a grave. We worship a God who's all about the resurrection. Jesus is no longer in the grave. We worship and we love the living Lord Jesus Christ. He's proven it. This passage tells us he's a first fruit. If you're a farmer, you know what that means. When you see a first fruit, it's cause for celebration. Why? It means there's a lot more coming along the way. Jesus, we're told, is a first fruit of this glorification, of this future glory, including a glorified body. If you're in him, he's the first fruit, which means if you're in Christ, you're following in his footsteps, and what he got, you get. What came to him will come to you. We too will be glorified. Secondly, our glorious future is absolutely secure because our God always finishes what He starts. Look with me at verse 29 and 30. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Friends, in that last sentence, in verse 30, Paul is using some big words. What he is doing, he's showing us a progression of events. He's showing us the, 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 if you like, the process or the procedure of you and us getting saved. We're getting saved. It's part of a movement. And if you look down at verse 30, who starts this movement? God. Who sustains this movement? God. Who finishes this movement? God. God starts this great work. He calls us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. And He will be the one to glorify us. What God begins in our lives, friends, He will finish. If He has begun your salvation, He will finish it. He will do it. You and I will not. He will do it. You might ask, as you read verse 30, okay, logically speaking, I have been justified. I get that. I am currently being sanctified. I get that. But have I been glorified? I don't think so. I, I still feel pretty perishable, I still feel pretty weak physically, but the amazing thing is this, in verse 30, Paul uses this term glorified in the past tense. Why? He's trying to indicate to us, in the mind of God, it's as good as done. It's a done deal. If He has justified you, He will be the one to glorify you. It is God's promise to you. What God starts, He will always finish. If God has saved you, He will finish your salvation. He will glorify you. As Christians, we go through many ups and downs of the Christian life. Sometimes, most times, it's pretty hard following Jesus faithfully. But there's a word of comfort for us. And the word of comfort is, when you're going through dark stages in your spiritual journey, we have to remind ourselves from verse 30, God is carrying us. God's love for you and me is not dependent on our performance. God's love for you and me is not dependent on our zeal or our passion or our church attendance. It's not like that. 
God is infinitely committed to us because He's committed to His own glory. Friends, what are the implications of this? What do we do with this passage? If you're here today reading this with us, and if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I think for you this passage very clearly tells you to look to heaven, but more specifically, to look to the person of heaven, which is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the truth is, as Christians, we believe that God sent His one and only Son to die for us and our sin. God creates the world. What does He say? It's good, good, very good. It's a sinless and a perfect world, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Adam, Eve, our parents, they failed, they sinned, they rebelled, they disobeyed God. What happens? The floodgates of sin open. Ever since that point up until now, everything in this creation is tainted by sin, including you and including me. God looks at this and He says, what am I going to do? God has a plan to save for His glory, for His joy. His promise is one day He's going to save people. He's going to make everything better. He has a rescue plan. And He promises His Son, Jesus. Fast forward in time, people are living and dying in sin. God, true to His Word, sends His Son, one and only Son. Jesus, the crazy thing is He would live a perfect life. That's the craziest thing about the gospel. It's crazy. He, he doesn't deserve to die. He was morally perfect. By the law, perfect, righteous. He did nothing wrong. The one human in all of creation that doesn't deserve death gets killed, crucified on a Roman cross. Why? For you and for me. And God will come to you and He'll say, you look at that. That's my love for you. If you repent of your sin and put your trust in Him, if you rely on Him, the promise is you'll be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you will do. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what your sins look like. If you look to Christ and say, He died for me. Lord, please save me. Please forgive me. Please heal me. Please be my God. God's promise is, I will accept you. I will embrace you. I will forgive you. And I will give you this glorious future. Friends, if you're here today, and if you're not yet a Christian, I would urge you to read the Gospels. Look at the person of Jesus, who He was, what He did, what He said, how He died, and how He rose again. And you look at this man who defeated the grave. It changes things. It changes things that are connected to our eternity. It has great implications for us. This passage is calling on the unbeliever to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus. If you're here today and you are a Christian, I think this passage has a lot of implications for us, but I just want to name a few. Firstly, we look at this passage in Romans 8, and I think it teaches us that as Christians, in the face of death, we don't mourn death as other people mourn. And I'm sure that for most of us, we've seen someone we love pass away, die. Probably the truth is, in the rest of our lives, you and I are going to attend funerals. We're going to see a lot more people die, right? Everyone's going to die. It's a great common denominator of humanity. We're all going to die. Friends, the Bible teaches us that as believers who believe in this glorious future that is yet to come, we don't approach death as other people do. Now, don't get me wrong. When I attend a funeral, I will weep with those who weep. That there is a place for crying. There is a place for compassion. Yes, we're sad because death is unnatural. It's not normal. But friends, as Christians, we don't weep with no hope. Why? Because we know the promise. Because we know who this God is and what He's promised us. Friends, sometimes we go to these funerals and sometimes we see people who are outside of Jesus 
weeping and wailing and weeping with no hope. Why? I think it's because they've bought into the idea 70 years, and that's it. 70, 80 years, and that's it. There's nothing beyond that. I just wonder if too many people have bought into that lie. I have 70 years to squeeze as much out of this life as I can because after death there's nothing. Friends, is that not a very narrow view of your existence? As a Christian, friends, as, as we mourn the sadness of death, we don't mourn as those without hope. Why? Because we know that at the great resurrection, all of us who are in Christ will be raised. That is our great living hope. Resurrection awaits those who are in Christ. Friends, secondly, by way of application, this passage calls on us to be yearning for our heavenly home. It causes us to, to, to think about this future that is coming and to say, God, I want this. I'm groaning for this heaven, a place that's like a never-ending banquet, a place that's like a wedding feast, a place like a city with no gates where the streets are made of gold, a place like a garden, unending joy, unending celebration, where we see Jesus face to face. And I think, friends, the great application for our lives is, as we go through difficulties in life, and we will, as Christians, I think we need to regularly and often look to the future and look at what God has promised us. And to remind ourselves, we don't belong here. Is life hard? Good. It's because you don't belong here. You're not home yet. When we get home, oh, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be awesome. No sin. No pain. Until we get there, Christians, we have work to do. We have a mission. We need to live for God's glory here. Preach the gospel to all nations. We need to grow in godliness. We need to disciple the nations. There's a lot we have to do. But until we get there... Life's going to be filled with lots of difficulties. And as they come, friends, this passage is reminding us to look to your glorious future, to yearn for that place. As a church family, one of the best ways you can contribute to this church is by reminding one another of this glorious king that is yet to come. You might meet someone at a cafe. They're going through a difficult time in their life. Maybe you need to remind them, brother, we're not home yet. It's hard. We want to cry together. We'll pray together, we'll serve God together, but we're not home yet. Until we get there, friends, let's work hard for God's glory. Thirdly, the idea that we have this glorification that's a cure, I think it should lead us to live as citizens of a coming kingdom. This glorious, perfect kingdom that's coming for sure. Friends, let me ask you, don't you want your friends to be there? Don't you want your family to be there, friends? I think a great application is invite them to the kingdom. Invite them to the banquet. Invite them to the wedding feast. Friends, there are many people in our lives that we love that don't yet love Jesus. They don't yet know how awesome He is and what He has done for them. Church, you and I, we are tasked by God with the gospel. There are people in Melbourne that need the gospel. You and I will take it to them. Friends, we invite them to this kingdom. Friends, implication, don't just live for 70, 80 years. Don't waste your life. Friends, let me tell you a story. Uh, there was a young boy who would come home every week from preschool, and every Friday afternoon he would come home, and his dad would give him some money. Every Friday afternoon, a little boy comes home rushing to his dad. Dad would give him a little coin, usually a five-cent coin. So it was like a thing that they did in their family. So each Friday, boy rushes home to preschool, goes to his dad, Daddy, Daddy, where's my five-cent coin? And the dad would give him a five-cent coin. It was just a thing that they did. On one particular Friday afternoon, little boy comes home, goes to his dad, Dad, where's my five cents? Dad takes out his wallet, goes through it, realizes he actually doesn't have five cents for his son. He realizes he doesn't even have 
a $2 coin. He had no coins that day. But what he did have was a $50 note. 50 bucks. So, dad stands there, looks at his son, looks at his wallet, thinks about it for a sec, and he says to his son, son, you've been a good boy. You've been a little champion. Today, daddy's going to give you 50, 50 bucks. And he gives to him, 50 bucks, the little boy. The kid receives it, looks at this note, and says, what's this? What is this thing? I don't want this. Gives it back to dad. I don't want this. Give me my five cent coin. And dad's like, no, son, you've wanted some money. You've been a good boy. Today, I'm going to give you 50 bucks. Here it is. Kid says, no, 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 I want my five cents. Dad says, I want my five cents. Dad tries to reason with him. Son, you don't understand. You can buy all this candy. You can buy all this Lego. All these things. It's 50 bucks. I want my five cents. Friends, God offers you himself. Don't settle for five cents. Friends, don't settle for temporary things in this world. That will fail you and disappoint you. Friends, lift your eyes to this glorious God who made you, who saved you, and the promises He has for you. Live for His kingdom and His glory, and when you lose your life, you will find it. That's what he says. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, he says this about our lives. He says this, All the adventures we have ever had will, at the time of our death, be only the cover and the title page. Finally, we will begin chapter 1 in the great story which no one on earth has read. A story which goes on forever and ever, and a story in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, may we delight in this God. May we live for eternity. May we yearn for this coming kingdom. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you that you have created us with eternity on our hearts. Father, we thank you that you've given to us your son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. Father, we thank you for your great and glorious promises in the gospel. Lord, we pray for those of our friends and those of us who have not yet responded to the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what you are promising us through your son's death and resurrection. Father, we pray for those of us who are saved, who are Christians, Father, we pray that you would teach us regularly to look up and to yearn for this kingdom that is coming. Lord, help us to not just live for 70, 80 years, but to live for this glorious future that goes forever. Lord, use us for your glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.